Hello, fellow nerds. Check out our network site, nerdsloth.com. You can also connect with us on social media like the Facebook, the Twitter, and the Instagram. If you like what you hear, look for Nerdsloth on Patreon and consider donating to help us continue delivering quality shows straight to your ears. If you'd like to help the shows out for free, head over to iTunes and write a heartfelt review. I mean it. Make me cry happy tears. But seriously, though, anything you can do really helps us out and we love you for it. Hey guys, this is Enrica Jang with Red Stylo Media, and you are listening to Adrian King and Adrian Has Issues. Hey everybody, welcome to Adrian Has Issues. Today's guest is a writer and illustrator known for his weekly feature, Decades of Inexperience, for Ant Express. He is also a staff writer for an advice column, Breadcrumbs from the Void, for 521 Magazine. His comics and stories have been published by Arcana Studios, Viper Comics, and Hobo Camp Review, which, not for nothing, uh, that's kind of an amazing name. <laughs> but please welcome to the show, AJ Schumacher. AJ, how's it going, man? Oh, it's going well. It's going well. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, I When I pulled that up, every time I see that, I just love the name Hobo Camp Review. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a pretty great review. And that was kind of one of the things that drew me in was uh, it's called Hobo Camp. How could you not be interested in having your work published there? Right? Because <laughs> now I'm thinking of it like those towns where like the homeless people like have like a newspaper. <laughs> like a, 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 what's it called? The Street Review or whatever it Yeah, is. like... <laughs> Decades of inexperience, which um, I've been checking out the panels, and this is a hysterical, kind of heart-wrenching, but almost so very true to my own life in a lot of ways. Like, So I don't know if you want to get into a little bit of the inspiration behind exactly what Decades of Inexperience is about. Obviously, the main objective for me is to have everybody feel the way that you do, where you kind of at least can read a few episodes and think, hey, that's absolutely my life because it's it's very much inspired by my own life and i consider the main character luke to be me at about 28 or 29 still kind of figuring stuff out doesn't don't really know what i'm doing with my life and you know sort of drinking your way and uh, feeling your way through you know remedial jobs and bad relationships and hopefully you know, finding finding your place at some point. It's very Bukowski-esque, if I can use that term. When I started Decades, I was reading a lot of the novels from that period. People, I had read a couple of Bukowski ones, but it was also people like Hubert Selby Jr. and uh, Newt Hampson and Charles Jackson and a lot of the sort of 60s novelists who were doing, it was, te- it was deemed dirty realism, even though it's a terrible name for it, but it was these guys who were writing about the side of life that, you know, the literati and, you know, academics didn't want to talk about. And so that was a huge inspiration for me and influenced me because I kind of lived that life. I was up in the Bay Area for a little bit and didn't have a lot of money. I mean, not that I do now, but, um, you know, lived in in crappy (laughs) apartments and, you know, ate Pop-Tarts for three months a day. And so that, that was my main inspiration behind that. I eat Pop-Tarts for dinner now, and it's kind of depressing, but it happens. <laughs> well, you know, there's a difference between when you can choose to eat Pop-Tarts for three meals a day and when you have to switch out between that and Top Ramen. That is very true, but you know what, though? Even having the ability to, I will never turn down ramen. I mean, yeah, it's crappy, it sucks, but in a pinch, it's still good. I- I'm going to go on record to say that. Anyone wants to judge me or unsubscribe to my podcast due to my stance on ramen? Go ahead, but at the same time, it's like, you know what? It, it still works. I mean, granted, it's hard to eat it now because the memories start flooding back because you know, there was a time when it's like, you know, this is all we ate. Right, right, totally. Well, now, you know, maybe you can add a little shrimp now or at least some hot sauce and, you know, you've got something a little bit better than maybe you had when you were 25. <laughs> exactly, but it's great. Like, you mentioned all these other writers in their work. Yeah. And you also talked about the fact that at that time, that's something that a lot of literary people didn't talk about or people didn't want to know about because you know and i think that kind of almost works even today where for a lot of us we want to get our entertainment get our stuff but we 
you know, I, I largely don't really want to know too much about the people behind it in a way where it's like, you don't want to know the stories about how those people really struggled. And a lot of the people that, let's say, make our comics, you know, we never know. Like, they may have issues paying their rent or having these real life things, or who knows? Maybe they could have very well gone hungry that night or something like that. And it's stuff that it's hard. And at least with decades of inexperience, it's kind of put a humorous spin on it. But this is something I think that a lot of people can still sort of relate to. And it may be unfortunate, but at least it does shine a light on something that, like I said, people may not know and sometimes may not even want to know. Right. And I think that's the main idea is just shining that spotlight on things that people are, you know, have difficulty talking about or don't want to talk about, or maybe, you know, the mundane moments, because too often times I find, you know, storytellers like to focus on the, the huge events and the big moments. And for me, that's not what life is made up of. It's made of the, the smaller, quieter moments of, you know, either reflection or, or just the day to day banalities of, you know, going to work and the crappy bus ride home or, or those moments that, you know, influence you and inform your day without you even necessarily recognizing that. Right, exactly. There was a particular time, I would say maybe late 90s, early 2000s, where, you know, I grew up reading, let's say, Marvel, X-Men, you know, superhero comics. And around the time when I started high school, of course, during my super angsty days, not that I'm not angsty now, but, you know, that was even full tilt then. But I went to this whole thing where I didn't care about superhero books anymore like they got annoying they got tiresome so then i started reading like a lot of underground stuff and basically getting like i said like those slice of life type stories about like i said about relationships and crappy jobs and it's funny because that's like i didn't experience those things just yet i was a little early for them but at the same time like you know what this seems a little more my speed so it's cool that that kind of vibe has continued and i did notice through you know decades of inexperience it kind of keeps that same vibe up and i I think that's really cool so my editor francis lombard who's also the editor-in-chief at ant express you know when we were first talking about it 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 was always meant to be a very human-based story And we didn't necessarily know exactly what it was going to be at the time, but we always knew we wanted to tell very personal stories with whatever the feature was going to be. And so it just sort of evolved to be what decades of inexperience is now. And and we're still sort of figuring things out to a degree, but, you know, I think it's been going well enough. And the thing that, that I really enjoy about it is it feels like life in the sense that it's not perfectly sequential and it's just kind of moment after moment in the life of this guy. And time goes by quickly sometimes in our lives. And, you know, we don't always have perfectly sequential uh, events that happen. So the haphazard or, you know, varied nature of doing a weekly, I've been really thankful for towards Francis for kind of allowing me that freedom to do it. You know, you mentioned that that was kind of your life during your 20s, but being a little older and I guess hopefully a little bit more wisdom, do you find that it's easier, maybe sometimes even more difficult to write those types of stories now? Well, I think you're giving me too much credit with the wisdom comment, but I'd like to to think I at least have a little more experience. And yeah, no, it's actually, I mean, because I have a wonderful wife now, you know, my life is pretty good. So I think to a degree that makes it easier to mine those horrific past experiences for, you know, comedic gold at this point. And it, it sort of softens the blow <laughs> of <laughs> what I went through since I'm doing okay right now. So yeah, it's, it's a little bit easier. I think at this point, it may have made me cry if I was trying to do it, you know, seven years ago or something, but. A lot of my writing personally would be like stuff that was happening at the moment and you're like, wait a minute, this is too hard to write. It's almost more of like journal entries at that point. So I guess maybe a little bit of separation makes it just a little bit easier to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. And especially when you're trying to do it with a bit of a comedic slant, you know, if I was doing it in the moment, like you said, sort of a more uh, journalistic approach, I think it would have been way too visceral and acute for me to try and actually make humor out of that because I I wouldn't have found any of that funny while it was happening, I don't think. So I think that separation definitely makes it a little bit easier. Exactly. When did this get started, by the way? Because I don't think we had covered that at any point when we were first talking. 
Francis and I started it. We, we were hooked up by our um, mutual friend and entertainment agent who thought we should work together, which he was obviously right because I think we do all right together. And we so, so we started talking, I think it was early 2015, and through summer 2015, we were preparing and organizing sort of what we wanted the feature to be and how we wanted it to go. And then October of 2015 is when it officially started. At this point, is there sort of like a set end, or is it basically it's just going to continue to go on as long as you have stories to tell? Yeah, as of right now, it's sort of an indefinite future and, and just perpetual feature that we want to continue on as long as we can. And I have an end game in mind. I, I know where it's going to go, but as far as knowing how long it's going to take to get there, we're I think we're winging it right now because there's a couple other things I've been doing and a couple other projects in the work. So it may also depend on, on how those shake out. But yeah, as of right now, we're planning on it being a pretty ongoing feature for as long as we can make it funny and entertaining, I think. When I first started talking to you, we were talking about a little bit about decades of an experience, but something I thought was kind of fascinating was the advice column side of things. Yeah, that was <laughs> that was interesting how that started. So I had taken a year Probably, I think it was kind of between 2014 and 2015 and really just worked on my writing because I knew going up to that point, I had just sort of focused on the illustration part. So I knew my writing was my weekend of the game. And if I wanted to write my own stories, I needed to really work on that. And so I took about a year and did that. So at the time, I was submitting short stories and uh, to like different literary magazines and also working on what turned out to be a terrible novel, but was a good learning experience. <laughs> good learning experience when you fail. Um, so five to one and the editor, uh, Nathan Schwartz were one of the people that I hooked up with during that time that liked what I did. And so he offered me doing a, a writing column an advice column about writing. So I took it and in my endearing way i made it a very tough love article where it's basically the idea that i'm not gonna coddle people and tell you that you know you're all you know luminous individual snowflakes no i'm gonna tell you that if you want to be a writer you need to put your ass in the chair and make sure that you're writing and so it's kind of from that viewpoint where you know i'm i'm your i don't know slightly abusive uncle or something but the one who also <laughs> influences you and inspires you to actually produce yeah, I was thinking about the scene from Whiplash, but instead of Miles Teller just feverishly working at a drum set, it's someone writing and you standing over them screaming the entire time. Yeah, that's kind of what I hope the article is for people. <laughs> it's the, you know, if, if they're thinking of taking a couple nights off or something, I hope, you know, my voice is in the back of their head saying, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> they got to pick up a video game controller. You're just smacking it out of their hands. Put that pizza down and go to your computer. Now I'm personally offended as someone who, A, loves pizza and also just had it moments ago. I don't know. We may have to start fighting now. <laughs> no, nothing wrong with pizza. I just I just guess I, I hope. <laughs> I, I do want to be the voice in their head kind of cracking the whip. And uh, in a very, I mean, it's a very satirical and funny way of doing it. But well, yeah, uh, that's kind of the idea. But, you know, hopefully there are little nuggets of wisdom in there as well. But you know what, though? You need that sort of kick in the ass. And I know for myself, because as much as I think of myself as being ambitious and whatnot, there are days where I can admit I'm totally just insanely lazy. Oh, sure. And I know, but at the same time, though, I think I kind of go the other route where it's like, I am almost afraid to take breaks because there's like the one day where it's like, okay, there's not a whole bunch of stuff happening right now. You can maybe allow maybe at least... A, a little bit of downtime, but then it's like, okay, I'll start turn on my PlayStation, and halfway through a game, I'm like, I feel guilty. Like, I should be working on something. Sure. I don't know, do you ever get that at all, or is that just me? Oh, no, absolutely. And, and you know, the, the thing is, especially when you're in some sort of creative endeavor, you have to take breaks. You're going to burn yourself out if you don't take a little bit of a rest uh, or respite from what you're doing uh, at one time or another. So I certainly don't, although in the column, I say nobody should ever take breaks in, in all honesty. Yeah. You need that. You need, you need a little bit of rest and uh, recuperation from what you're doing. So you can go back stronger uh, when you start doing it again. And the thing is sometimes in all honesty, you just don't, feel like doing it and that's okay because if you force yourself during those periods it's just going to be shitty anyway 
It's kind of like trying to toe that line of when to sort of push past your own bullshit or when to kind of just be like, okay, you know what? Let this not breathe. Because yeah. at least for me, it always goes in extremes. Either it's like you go in, you know, full throttle or in some days where you're just like, wow, you're really just struggling. Right. Because, you know, they always say like you should write or you should create even if you don't feel like it. Yeah. But then that turns into a petulant child where it's like, I don't want to. Right. You're just throwing a temper tantrum. You know, I think there's something to the idea of forcing yourself to work even when you don't want to but i also think that you have to know when that's okay to push through that and when it's okay to you know like you said play a video game or eat pizza or get drunk or whatever and just take a break from it and the only way you're gonna know that balance is through experience and and just you know putting your nose to the grindstone and doing it that's the only way you know when it's okay to take that break and when it's not or find ways to be lazy and creative at the same time where it's like, look, I could get drunk or write or I could do both. <laughs> and that is okay. Well, you know, it's that old Hemingway quote, right? It's it's write drunk, edit sober. So as long as you're writing, well, like, <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Just like go back and look at it the next day and make sure it's not all horrible <laughs> or that some of it is usable. But yeah, no, I know. I think when I'm writing specifically, I definitely have a couple drinks to sort of loosen it up because I think there's something to – liquid courage and uh, opening the floodgates a little bit. And I do think it, it certainly, uh, you know, helps perpetuate that forward motion. Whereas if I'm drawing, it's a whole different set of motor skills. So if I have a few while I'm drawing, I know that's going to end up looking like absolute shit. So I will steer clear of the booze while, while I know I have artwork to do. But writing, absolutely, I think that's okay. And that's one of the nice things about these jobs, you know, I could never do that at my day job. <laughs> I'd probably be fired. But, <laughs> but if I'm writing, yeah, I could have a, you know, open container right at the desk, right at my side and, <laughs> and still look like I'm doing something productive, which is wonderful existence. I always am jealous of those people that not that they're better when they're impaired, but yet it's like they're totally just functional that they can, like I said, draw or write or do something like that, like being creative where they're actually better for it, but I'm like, you know what? Like, I, I can't. Like, maybe at some point I could, but I don't know. Like, I feel like I'm getting old now. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's that sensory recall. It's just that you have to do it enough while you're drunk so you can get better at it. And then so, you know, at some point, though, it's probably going to be that you're only good at it when you're drunk, which not that there's anything wrong with that, but it, there's, <laughs> I think it's, again, striking that balance like we were talking about before. Yeah, because I was going to say that might work when you're home. Not so much if you're at a convention. <laughs> right. No, no, no. And yeah, oh, conventions are terrible times to work. Anyway, I think alcohol is fairly necessary when you're at a convention. For me personally, because I'm I'm terrible with crowds. I don't know if there's an actual term for the phobia. Because it's not necessarily agoraphobia. I don't mind leaving the house. But it is specifically if I'm in large crowds, I... I tend to get a little anxious and neurotic. Not for nothing. I do agree to that. I love conventions because, of course, it's like you're around your people. You're around, like, the scene and this vibe you love so much. But there's always this moment that always happens, at least to me, where it's like I'm aware of where I am. And then all of a sudden, I'm just like, oh, my God. And it's like, okay, I'll talk to somebody at a table. And all of a sudden, I'll walk away. And I'm like, they probably hate me. Like, this is awful. There's this weird sense of anxiety that comes over me, which would be squashed with booze. But if that were the case, then I'd probably spend the whole time taking a few fingers from my flask. Yeah. And I think that's okay sometimes. <laughs> just depending on, the, <laughs> depending on the interaction, I suppose. Because for me, it's more when I'm on the other side of the table, you know, working with, like, the Cartoon Art Museum or you know, doing a signing or something. I, I don't mind being drunk as much when I'm there. But yeah, if you're trying to network or, or talk to people, there's, like you said, there's always that instance of sheer panic, especially directly following those interactions where you're thinking to yourself, I just sounded like a complete moron. Those people hate me. I'll never get called. I'll never get work with them. And, you know, we always do that to ourselves, I think. Yeah, and I don't know, I guess maybe that's just sort of like creatives in general where, you know, I I think we're very hard on ourselves in, you know, various ways. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, like conventions are hard that way because, you know, I, gosh, and I, you know, I can't mention them by name necessarily, but there was one where I was talking to somebody and trying to network and I bombed horribly. Like, I'm talking like this person literally was like, had to ask me, was I okay? Wow. <laughs> That's epic. <laughs> it was kind of awful, but at the same time, I'm like, you know what? I'm almost glad that I screwed up because then I saw him the next year, and then it's like, okay, now that we got that much awkwardness out of the way, now we can just be totally smooth, and it's like, okay, we can laugh about it now. 
Yeah, I mean, once you're in the gutter, there's only you can only go up from there. So yeah, <laughs> once you set that precedent, it's like this guy's only expecting horrible things from you. So I mean, there's no way you could do as bad another time. Right. There's that uh, Ray Bradbury quote, which I love, where he's talking about, you know, this sort of goes along with the, the advice column, where he was saying, write one short story every week. And he says, the reason to do that is because in the course of a year, there's no way that you could write 52 shitty short stories. Like, <laughs> one of them will be good. It's just the law of average. And of course, I'm paraphrasing, but it, it's sort of that idea where you just have to get the experience of doing something enough times before you can actually be adept at it. Right. Even times where I'll do a podcast where it always seems like it's one way when I first do it, but then the next day with a little bit of separation, you go back to it. I was like, oh man, like that was really good. <laughs> yeah. See, I always think the opposite when I, you know, I, I feel lucky enough that people allow me to sully their podcasts. And then every time I'm done with one, I think, oh my God, I sounded like an idiot. So <laughs> I, I tend to go the other way. I think when, when you're on, you know, the interviewee side. Right. That does happen, but there's always that moment where, yeah, it's it takes a little bit, it, you know, it picks up steam, it could be a slow build, but I've had people on my show who, you know, I, I know a friend of mine who still has listened to his episode, you know, because he's like, he always says how he hates the sound of his voice, and I'm like, I get that, because once you can get past hearing yourself, your recorded version, everything else is good, because that's always cringeworthy. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, it's like, even though I know kids these days don't know about it, it's the idea of, like, hearing yourself on an answering machine, you know, it's that's... <laughs> <laughs> that same sort of moment of oh god <laughs> of course those don't exist anymore so I, I don't know if there's any youngins listen to this but you see kids what answering machines were <laughs> oh gosh I just I, I hated those only because I'd always end up having to call somebody who had like one of those novelty ones where it's like you'd call and next thing you know hear someone go hey how's it going you start talking and like a minute later it's like oh, I'm just kidding I'm not home right now leave a message you know I was like what yeah, that pissed me off. I'm like, don't waste my time. Just let me leave a message. Don't be an <laughs> asshole. <laughs> Maybe we should just bring back the answering machine. You know, of everything else that's being revived, I, I think this is a perfect time to bring back answering machines in some way. Like connect them to the cell phone somehow? I, I think too many people just are too mobile right now for, for message machine or for voicemail machines to work. Voicemail machines. Yeah, you call them voicemails now. Ah, uh, see, well, like the old school ones with the cassettes. Right, right. And see, kids don't know what cassettes are. However, though, and I don't know how this happened. Like, okay, when vinyl made its comeback, it made perfect sense. Because, look, I mean, some people will sit there and be like, oh, vinyl doesn't sound so much different. Like, no, it's, it makes a, a, a lot of difference. So when that came... It's a world of... Yeah. So when that came back, it was cool. Like, from an audiophile standpoint, right. it was heaven on earth. But then they decided, well, vinyl came back. Let's bring cassettes back. And I'm like, no, the hell, you don't. I'm sorry. No. I like just using my pencils and pens for drawing. I don't need to use them to re-spool my cassettes again. Like, it's, there's, there's no need for that. I have tons of cassettes, and somewhere in a box in storage, I still have mine. But I also remember that some of my favorite tapes, when I try to listen to them now, they all sound like they're possessed by demons, because I listened to them so many times that they're all warped. Which is exactly why our cassettes that, you know, people of our specific age accumulated over uh, however many years, it's exactly where they belong, in a box, in a basement, or an attic, or in a dumpster. That's where cassettes belong. I want to go through some of those old tapes because somewhere, and of course I'm saying this publicly, so if I ever decide to get like super famous, someone will probably try to hunt them down, but my cousins and I actually used to do like a radio show, like on our tape recorder, like we had like one of those Fisher Price, you know, with the little microphone on the side of it, and we would basically do a, a radio show every weekend that we'd hang out, and I'm like, holy crap, like we might have invented podcasting. Yeah, it was a precursor to Adrian has issues for sure. Oh, no, I still had issues then, and it's kind of depressing how many I had on that show. <laughs> I was like, on the show specifically, but yeah, that too. <laughs> but no, it was weird. Like, there were segments, and we would actually do skits. Like, honestly, it felt more of, like, if you took little kids and had them, like, do a version of Comedy Bang Bang, like, that's kind of basically what the show was. That's impressive. See, I don't think I was, I don't think I'm that creative now, let alone when, you know, I, w I was that age. I think I was still too busy drinking out of hoses and eating dirt. See, I 
the dirt thing I couldn't do because I was I was that uber pretentious kid playing in sandcastles, like playing in sandboxes, like it used to bother me because anytime sand got in my shoe, like my day was basically ruined. I was such an asshole as a kid. Well, all kids are kind of assholes. I mean, well, yeah. To be fair, because I don't know, like at that point, like during your action figure phase, did you smash the figures together or did you actually like write out storylines for them? I was a weird child and I would write out storylines for them. But on top of that, what I would do is I had this, speaking of cassette tapes, I had a cassette tape of all these old Beatles songs. Well, all the Beatles songs are old, I suppose, but I have of Beatles songs. And so I had a few, I think they were like in action figures that had instruments like guitars and drums and stuff. And so I would set them up and pretend that they were putting on a Beatles concert for me. See, you and I would have been really good friends as kids. Probably. Because we're both fucking weird. <laughs> but those are the kinds of people that I'm still friends with, and I don't have any problem with that. Right? And, like, I think about, like, there were some times, like, I'd hang out with, like, the few times I'd be at, like, a friend's house or, like, a birthday party. And, like, the kids would be playing with action figures. But always, like, like the kid who would basically take the two figures and, like, make smashing noises as he, like, rams them into each other. And then, like, one would get thrown across the room because, like, they got hit too hard or something. It used to, like, again, I was an asshole. Like, it used to bother me because I'm like, first off, don't throw that. And right. second of all, like, why are they fighting? What is the motivation behind this? Right. Like, okay, can we really, like, get down to... They're, you know, what are their lives like? Why are they smashing into each other? Yeah, and I think those are the kids, you know, who grew up to be, you know, what we are in, in you know, in comics or the online literary magazine game. Because a lot of these people that I've networked with, uh, you know, like the people who let me do Breadcrumbs and who let me do Mr. Butterchips, the comic strip for Drunk Monkeys. These are all kids that I'm sure I would have been friends with as a child because we're all just bizarre. As someone who deals with comics, yeah. and as someone obviously who loves literary work, that I, I feel like I'm sort of out of that loop in terms of the online literary thing, because I've noticed that that's kind of a really cool scene that's been doing a lot of great stuff, but I feel like they don't really get as much notice that I feel like they should. And I'm definitely as an outsider, so I don't know if you want to give some insight as to kind of like, you know, what's been going on with that? You know, I don't know if I have a lot of insight, but I definitely delved into that world, like I said, when I was specifically focusing on the writing. And I looked into sort of really independent and underground um, literary magazines. And there's just been this entire world that has blossomed with these online literary magazines. And the really great thing is, the thing that I found most compelling is that Comics are a big thing with them. Comics are sort of this unicorn to them. This, you know, because <laughs> um, everybody, right? You know, anybody could write, and and not to say that you know that it's easy, but everybody writes, sends them prose or poems or things like that. And so the the sequential art and the graphic narratives are something that they're starting to find intriguing as well, which has been wonderful, and it has opened up an entirely new sort of audience for me which has been great so like drunk monkeys as i've mentioned they they had me do the monthly comic strip mr Butterchips, which is um he's an organ grinder monkey but i sort of use that as a vehicle for very satirical and sometimes political <laughs> humor um, right. but they're extremely open to it and because i think in america there's just been this kind of stranglehold on comics where anytime you mention comics to somebody they think of superheroes. Right, exactly. Yeah, whereas, you know, any other country that's adopted it or, you know, you know, France and Japan and all these places that use that medium view it as a venerable, you know, storytelling genre and medium. And I think America, you know, the big two have just kind of had a stranglehold for so long, although that is starting to shift now. And people in America are starting to realize how useful and how unique the comics medium is. Yeah, I, I think it's about that time, and I think this is why we're seeing so much kind of turmoil, because, you know, even just as recently with Marvel, with the debacle with the Retailer Summit, where some things were said there that kind of rubbed the industry and a lot of other creators the wrong way, and, you know, I'm not necessarily going to go too much into that, but we're still at this point that I personally feel like we should have already been past. There's no reason why we can't view comics as a legitimate art form as opposed to just funny books, you know what I mean? Right, and I guess that's my point, is is not, I mean, superhero books, they have an audience, and that's perfectly fine, I mean, that's that's where a lot of the, 
the medium sort of started. Um, but as you were saying, I just think, you know, specifically in the States, you know, we need to understand and recognize that there are far more genres just as varied as any other storytelling medium um, in comics as there are in movies or novels or any anything else. And again, I think that shift is starting and there's some great, great books out by people like Durf Bacter. He did a book called My Friend Dahmer, which is he grew up. Well, he went to high school with Jeffrey Dahmer. And Holy so, crap. Yeah, so it's sort of about his experience with that. And that that's a fantastic book. And there are, you know, there's a woman named Alison Bechtel who is phenomenal. And she did a book called Fun Home about her sort of tortured relationship with her father. And then her uh, subsequently come out as a lesbian, which was a difficult thing to do in the time that she was growing up. So there are some very personal and, and fantastic works that are coming out and getting getting some real recognition, which I, I love seeing. I understand. When you have that many people invested in a company, you know, you have to keep it afloat by any means necessary. So, you know, there's that also that thought of, you know, it's hard to have it both ways because at some point something's going to give. Right. Especially now with the movies. I mean, they have the geese that lay the golden eggs. So it's not as though they're going to completely alter their business model at this point. So what do they have to lose? Absolutely nothing. Everything, I suppose. Well, he, I, well, that's. I think that's what they feel that they'll lose. Now, I mean, that's also to say that maybe they will lose a particular audience. But I don't know. In that situation, what would I do? Like, let's say, for instance, if I was running a combo company or any kind of company, and I was having everything handed to me, but then I'm realizing that the landscape's shifting. So it's like, okay, I could reach out to this group, but. That may mean that I don't necessarily make the same amount. Now, maybe over time, as you again build new fan bases, because, you know, the people who read books now, at some point, these people, you know, for the sake sheer patches of time, they may die off and then their kids are going to be reading them. So then what happens? Are, are their kids going to be reading the same thing? But it's weird. Like, I'm reading a lot of the same characters that my parents did. And, you know, my cousins and my friends are having kids, and they'll probably end up reading the same thing. And it's like, yeah, it's cool on one end, but then if nothing really changes, it's, it's a little unfortunate. Yeah, and I guess that's the thing for me is really the tedium of just continuing those characters without much changing. That's the thing is if there was a huge shift in in the character or or if any of the big two were coming out with new characters consistently, I think I would feel very differently about the companies. Right. But the thing is, they, they, you know, they will make a big change with a character or a particular status quo. But then what happens is, just as it's touted as things will never be the same again, within a couple of months, things revert back. And it's almost like, you know, like with soap operas, like it's no different than a stuff like Grandmother Watches where, you know, <laughs> like a character blows up in a car and yet, you know, she's gasping. But, you know, we all know for a fact that like six months later, that character is going to show up and break up somebody's wedding. Right. And I guess that's that's my attraction to the the more personal and human stories is, you know, if somebody dies in one of the books that I'm reading, they're they're actually dead. And I know they're not coming back. <laughs> you know? Right. And, and there's something, I don't know, I guess, for lack of a better term, precious about that, that makes it something more relatable. That makes it something more visceral to know that the time that you have with that character is a little bit more, um, I don't know, important, I guess. When you said that, I think of people like George R. R. Martin, where, let's say, Game of Thrones, this major character was getting killed off. And, of course, you see the reactions online, and people are, like, pulling their hair out. They're flipping out. Some of them are legit crying. Meanwhile, I'm reading my Twitter feed, and I'm just cracking up because I'm like, they're like, why would you do that? And always monster. I'm like, ha this is what happens in the real world. This is how most books should be written. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And, and for me, writing... It comes from a way more personal place where I, I definitely cherry pick things out of my own life to, you know, give it a little bit more of a real world feel to it. And there, there are things like you said that are just a little bit more relatable or something that you that make you feel like, you know, that character better. Right. I, I guess, you know what, there is a place for your standard stories, because every so often 
when I sit down to read a comic, sometimes I want something that's, like, I know exactly what I'm getting. Like, okay, I know when I, like, let's say if I pick up Captain America, okay, maybe not now that he's a Nazi, but, well, before that, you know, <laughs> there'd be, <laughs> you know, obviously to be some bad guy, he'd throw in, throw a shield at him, knock him out, and save the day. Awesome, next issue, let's move on, let's keep doing the same thing. Every, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but you're right, I, I realize as I'm getting older, it's like, at some point, and maybe people feel differently, but it's like, I, I want a little bit of a shift. So I'm glad that with independent comics and, you know, art being what it is, is that people are starting to realize that we can tell the stories that, you know, these other people can't tell. And while it kind of sucks from a distribution aspect because they got to work harder to do it, but at least you're getting something that's a little bit truer, I think, in a way. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and I think that's the, the main thing for me in writing stories and telling stories is the honesty behind it. That's the most important thing for me. So like with the graphic novel that I'm doing right now that my agent is pitching around and shopping to a few different places, it's a very honest and personal story that I'm telling with it. And it's one that I, that I guess maybe, you know, five, 10 years ago, I didn't feel like I would be able to tell in this medium. Whereas now I've discovered so many other uh, writers and artists who are doing work of that caliber and on that level that, that made me a little bit more comfortable with pursuing this story in this specific mode of storytelling. Growing up at the time that we did, it was hard to find other people who read that stuff. So now, you know, it's, it's a bigger thing. And on one end, I'm like, cool, it's finally happening. And the other end, I'm like, why the hell didn't this happen much sooner? I could have been on the front end of this. Right, right. Yeah. And to that point, you know, a lot of what, we saw when growing up, I don't know if you're, so I grew up in a pretty small town. And so most of the books that I had were the superhero stuff and the superhero stuff coming out in, you know, late eighties, early nineties during my sort of formative years were people like Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee. And, right. you know, these guys who drew such extensive illustrations where that's not really how my artwork is. So I saw them doing this and I, I basically gave up and went, well, I could never do that. So I could never draw comic books. And so luckily for me, you know, going up to the Bay Area and meeting a lot of other cartoonists and discovering sort of the indie books and the, you know, the images and the Onis and the Dark Horses and those uh, presses or slave labor, you know, and then thinking to myself, oh, maybe I can, you know, if these guys are drawing in a more, you know, cartoony style you know, maybe it is possible. Whereas before, I think I was just inundated with this really, you know, gorgeous artwork, this, this photorealistic stuff that, you know, now feels very stock and cookie cutter to me. But at the time, it just made me feel like I wasn't long for the comic book field. And, you know, I guess we're fortunate that we were both at least close enough to areas where people were kind of experimenting and doing really cool things with comics because, you know, I'd imagine if that weren't the case, it would have taken me much longer to kind of come around to that, or maybe not, you know? And I, I guess that's something that being in a metropolitan area, I take for granted that at any point I can take a train into a city and there's, you know, all this culture, there's all this art, and there's people, you know, just constantly creating. But, you know, maybe for some, that's not the case for them. Yeah, it certainly wasn't for me up until I was about in my 20s, because I grew up in kind of a small town near Monterey, California. When I moved up to the Bay Area in my early 20s, and it was just such an eye-opening experience for me to discover all of that. And I mean, not to mention, you know, the food and the music and all of the great things that the city has to offer. But the biggest thing for me was, you know, realizing just how varied artistic styles can be. And not just in comics, I mean, in any style of artwork. But obviously, the one that was m most intriguing for me was to see all the different artists creating, you know, comics and zines and and those different types of things. Which, now that you mention it, it really is kind of like the next evolution of zines. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it's all digital now, whereas, you know, in, in the early 2000s, which, to, you know, to you and me probably doesn't sound like that long ago, but I'm sure to somebody who's, you know, just 20 now seems like, you know, prehistoric Pantera or whatever. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, in the early 2000s, people were still printing and stapling their own zines and selling them at, you know, little, little shows and things like that. On one end, like, I kind of miss that vibe. 
and not in the way of it's like oh it needs to be exactly that thing but i i guess in a way it already is here you know it's like people are still doing it and while yeah you're right there's no more staples involved but i guess a lot of these magazines are kind of doing that same thing it's hard to sort of do it at a level where enough people notice but hopefully at least they're able to build up enough of a fan base enough of a following that they can at least have a nice little space at the table so to speak yeah, and you have to be way more tech-savvy than I am, so I, I give it up to anybody who can build that kind of audience. I'm still working at it, and, and like I said, I've just I've been lucky enough to meet enough people like our friend Christopher and, and you and, you know, Drunk Monkeys, uh, the guy named Matthew Garuki there, and now Colleen um, Tarney is the editor-in-chief, and, you know, Francis Lombard, who does Antics Press, and Nathan, who does 5 to 1, and, you know, just found this nice little network of people who are actually willing to let me bring the culture of their respective publications down a little bit. Right. And that's really what I think is going to drive the scene going forward. I think what it's really going to come down to is, like I said, a community, a group of people really coming up and, you know, and doing it the right way, obviously, but coming together and really just creating art and for the sake of creating art and not necessarily for fame. I mean, if they get popular, great, but I think it's going to take more of a collaborative effort than it ever did, only because there's so much out there that there's not, I personally feel like there's no other way to really do it now. Yeah, no, I, I agree, especially with the online stuff. You know, what self-publishing and digital publishing and, you know, create space on Amazon and those kind of things, the problem with those is they've essentially let anybody who wants to put anything out in the world the ability to do that. So what we have is a completely flooded market. And that's, and, and I mean, that's not just comics or books, that's music and that's movies. And, you know, you can put anything online. So finding a network to help, you know, promote each other's work and, and publish each other's work and support one another is, is a huge boon to whatever you're doing these days. Absolutely. Right. Cause, you know, I think about even with music, cause that's something that's very dear to my heart. And it's like, well, all right, how did I find out about, the stuff that I'm into nine to 10 times. It's someone that I knew, whether it's online or in person. Someone I trusted basically being like, Oh, Hey, you know, you should check these guys out or, you know, you know, check out this band or, you know, they're really cool. You know, someone hit me to it. And I feel like in order for the scene to grow, that's kind of what we had to do is, and obviously you do it in a way that, you know, it's not self-serving, but just to really trying to push things forward. You know, I think the other side of that too, on the artistic side, the other, the other part you have to do is just be constantly producing. And the problem is the moment that you take too long of a break or the moment that you get a little bit too comfortable, the person who's waiting to take your spot is going to kick your ass right out of that place. Absolutely. Constantly and consistently and perpetually producing is something that's become even more vital. Not that it wasn't before, but I think to a degree it, it's – even more important now because i think for a lot of us and you know i still have that thing of oh all i need to do is create this one thing and it's like boom you know that's going to be you know my rocket to the big time but it's like all right cool you know it's like hey that thing you did was really cool all right keep at it act like you've been here before <laughs> right right and then the question becomes okay you've made that one thing that you know <laughs> hope against hope rockets you to the limelight well then what because that only lasts for so long. So you need, and I think even, you know, publishers and other places will, will ask that when you're going in. They're not just going to let anybody walk through the door just because they have one thing that seems to be great. They need to know that you're going to be somebody who's going to be producing in the future too. And it could be a little defeating, you know, even at this particular level, but I'm kind of at least. I, I part of me really does enjoy the challenge, though I don't like to admit it. And there are some days where, you know, I said the anxiety gets cranked up to 11. But yeah. if it's, you know, at least I know if it's something I have to really work at, then you know what? It, it should at least be worth it in some regard. So I'm always appreciative of anybody, whether I've had them on the show or not, who are basically in the trenches doing the work and getting their name out there because it's not easy to kind of go out there and be like, hey, this is this thing I'm doing because nobody really has to pay attention. So to be able to sort of make them pay attention to what you're doing and not only like it, but also share it. Like that's something that I don't take lightly because that's, that's impressive. No, I agree. And and the thing is, if it's, you know, it can seem daunting and it can seem tedious at times to, 
be able to produce that much. But the fact of the matter is you need to be able to do that. And if that is something that's too difficult, then unfortunately this probably isn't the field for you because you think of the people who are, you know, working, especially like at the big two, if you're somebody who wants to be a writer or an illustrator for them, you need to be doing several books a month, which means writing. I mean, the drawing takes a little bit longer, obviously, but writing or drawing, you know, 22, 23 page books, three to four of those every single month. So if you can't even draw a page a week, you know, this is probably not something that you're going to enjoy doing. And that's why I truly feel that the only people who really succeed in these fields are the people who love doing it, who are the people who would be doing it regardless of whether they were getting paid for it or not. Because otherwise, if you're looking for a quick buck or you're looking for, you know, just some sort of celebrity status, and I say that in a very uh, um, <laughs> air quotes way when I'm talking about comics um, or relative way, but this is not this is not that kind of job. This is something that you're going to be working your ass off for the rest of your life. So you better love what you're doing. Right. But it is kind of cool, though. I will admit when you see someone, you know, want to come up and you actually see their progression. And that's something that's very cool with being on Twitter or social networking, where I've actually been seeing, you know, people like some followers or even some of them friends of mine work at this one level and literally just seeing their art and their profile grow. And I think it's really awesome. It's just kind of like, hey, you know, I remember when, you know, you used to draw it at this and, you know, it, it should make you proud. And it really, in a way, it's like that nice, healthy competition where you see a buddy of yours, you know, they're doing it and doing better. And it's like, you know what? It should bolster and make others want to do better and not in a way where it's like, oh, look at them. Like, they're getting famous. You know, those jerks. <laughs> right. Well, no, and, you know, uh, it doesn't have to be a negative competition, but I think some form of competitiveness is okay. And, and it, if it makes you reach and try to grow as an artist, I think that's always important. Because for me, the thing is, if I ever get to a point where I think I'm the best that I'm going to be or that there, I have nothing left to learn, I feel like that's when it's time to stop. Because I'm nowhere near where I want to be right now. And I hope I just continue to advance and, and learn new things with the art and the writing. And that's a huge part of keeping this, the, the art form engaging and fun for the person doing it is just uh, always learning new things and always trying to make yourself, trying to improve yourself. And this is something that a lot of other creators have said before me, so these are definitely not my words particularly, but I do agree with it in, in as much as now we're not even just necessarily selling the art that we produce, we're in a way selling ourselves. Yeah, the internet has completely ruined artist anonymity. So, <laughs> so part of me says, fuck you, internet, but the other part is, you know, the other part is people get to know you and that can also change somebody's opinion from hating what you do to at least tolerating it because maybe they like you as a person and wouldn't have necessarily given your art a second look, but because they think you're okay or they think you're funny or whatever it is, then we'll give your art or your writing the chance that it, that it may deserve. So, you know, I, I have a very loving relationship with technology. Every time I say to myself, you know, I hate technology and the few times where I find myself going on these rants about like how social media ruins things, because I every so often I will go on them, but I'm like, it gave me so much. I mean, that's how I met my girlfriend. That's how I was able to do this show. So and it's like, okay, am I on it all day? And maybe I should be probably, but it's like, you know what? Without this, I would probably be still using that same Fisher Price tape recorder to do a podcast. Oh yeah. It's totally this like self-loathing, self-fulfilling prophecy of, uh, you know, Gen Xers or whatever the hell we're considered where, you know, we're going to be curmudgeons and bitch about stuff, but it's given us a lot of opportunities too. So I can't uh, uh, lament it that much. True. But granted, I, I am uh, the consummate curmudgeon, so I'd probably do it regardless. Oh yeah, me too. My wife always, you know, paints me as the, the guy who's like yelling at the kids on our lawn. I will be the guy who will go out, play with those kids, but then yell at them for being out there as I walk back into the house. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> it's like, you got their kids, you need to get off the lawn, but here's a couple of extra nerve guns. Have fun. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, no, I'm just the guy who goes, get the hell off my lawn, you're being too loud. Oh, boy. <laughs> I guess there's nothing really wrong with that. I guess we could be like the, you know, the old grandparents of the comics game. Yeah, I'll, I'll be the new uh, Bruce Tim. 
I know, but at the same time, you know, talking about selling ourselves and, like, our personalities, I'm like, he's produced so much great stuff. I'm like, I can't even necessarily be mad at you. Yeah, so hopefully I'll get to that point, too, right? (laughs) Right? It's okay that he's an asshole. He makes good comics. Right? That's all we can hope to strive for. (laughs) In game, right there. I've just, like, summed my career up in a nutshell. But again, like I said, there's look at stuff and it's fantastic. And, you know, of course, talking to you, I've had so much fun and hopefully everybody else did too, because like I said, like, this is kind of why we do what we do only because it's like, yeah, I mean, you could see the stuff online, but who is the person behind it? Why should right. you care? And again, I- I'm so glad that Chris once again was able to kind of hook us up because this has been so much fun and I got to know something I didn't know before. I- I'm an asshole. Or did you know that before? Not necessarily. (laughs) Well, you know now. Knowing is half the battle. There you go. (laughs) Oh, boy. But again, thank you so much for taking the time out and chatting with me. I had an absolute blast, and hopefully we get to do this again soon. Yeah, Adrian, thank you so much for having me on. It was was a lot of fun, man. All right. Well, um, well, before you go, though, um, please let everybody know uh, where they can find your work online and anything else you want to either tease or plug right before we close. Sure. You can find links to pretty much everything that I'm doing at alexschumacherart.com, A-L-E-X-S-C-H-U-M-A-C-H-E-R-A-R-T.com. There's little links. Go to anticspress.com where you can find decades of inexperience on a weekly basis. You can go to 5to1magazine.com, I think, or .net, where you can find the column Breadcrumbs from the Void on a biweekly schedule. And then you can go to drunkmonkeys.net, where my satirical comic strip Mr. Butterchips is posted monthly. Also, I'm just glad that you validated my uh, action figure mentality because this is a lot of reasons why I didn't have a lot of friends as a kid. (laughs) No, hey, I'm glad to find uh, like-minded folks, always. Oh, man. Again, thank you so much for that, and thanks for everything else. And as uh, far as us, the lovely Eileen will be giving you all the social media information after the ending theme. But for now, that'll do it for this episode of Atrian Has Issues, and we will see you next issue. Thank you for listening to Adrian Has Issues. Please be sure to visit adrianhasissues.com to stream or download our other great episodes. Like us on Facebook at Adrian Has Issues, on Instagram at Adrian Has Issues Pod, and follow us on Twitter at Adrian Has Issues. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the Satchel Podcast app, available on iOS and Android. Adrian Has Issues is a proud member of the Nerdsloth Network, home to such great podcasts as Nerds on Tap, Cinefreak Critique, and Saturday Morning Cartoon Boom. Visit them at nerdsloth.com.